to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, you know, it has been a week of really um, sobering realities, and there are so many thoughts uh, that I myself, and I know you, have probably tried to reconcile personally to try to make sense of it all. And we know that we don't always have the answers to our questions because we're limited in our understanding, especially as it relates to the will of God and the purposes of God. But that doesn't mean we still aren't going to be asking them. And we watch the pictures of this massive hurricane that has moved through the fourth largest city in our country, just wreaking havoc and, and bringing destruction that, that is record-breaking, flooding tens of thousands of homes, causing billions of dollars of damage. And then this weekend, um, there was the very tragic news of our friend Lelia at Village Creek, a woman with a, with a precious spirit and a selfless heart for ministry who was serving sixth graders, sixth grade girls, and trying to set up the, the ropes course and the tree climb at Village Creek and fell and um, severed her spinal cord and is paralyzed from the waist down. And many of us know her and... and struggle with that. And then many of us dealing with other things, some of us recently dealing with the unexpected death of a family member or fighting a very significant health crisis with few answers and maybe not very much money to to pay for it. Others have serious job uh, uncertainty or, or no job at all and some are dealing with broken marriages and divided families and children who have strayed for the Lord, and on and on and on and it goes. One of the biggest questions that we ask and that we wrestle with in times of difficulty like this is, why? Why didn't God prevent it? Why didn't, if He is so gracious and so wonderful as we just sang about in that beautiful song, why didn't He step in and stop it before it got worse? Or why did He not even allow it in the first place? And why does a person like Leah, who's serving the Lord, have to endure experiences that that to us, cognitively, seem unfair? Why wouldn't he protect us? Why wouldn't there be, for his children, no pain and no heartache? Now, those questions are very, very real, and they can really test our faith, and they can test our endurance, especially when we're living faithfully for the Lord and, and we can't quite make sense of it. We feel like as believers, maybe, that, that we should be more immune from difficulty. That because we're walking with the Lord, that, that there should be some shielding and some protection and, and that He should provide a little more and encourage us a little more and, 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 and protect us a little more. Well, this morning, we're going to briefly look at a woman who fit all those categories. She likely was not a believer at the start of this passage, chapter 17, verse 1, but she had some level, we can see, of understanding and faith, and she was experiencing both personal and circumstantial difficulties, so she was, she was dipping from both wells, and these things that were going on in her life really rocked her world. I mean, to the, to the point that's, that's beyond hope, and she is trying to understand, and she's questioning God's care and questioning God's help. And what we're going to learn from her this morning is how God works in these situations. So 1 Kings chapter 17, start in verse 8. We're going to read quite a bit of text, but we're going to 
just develop it on kind of a basic level this morning. Then the word of God came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we will eat and die. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go, do as you've said. Easy for him to say, make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 14, the bowl of flour will not be exhausted, nor will the jar of oil be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So... She went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and, her, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Now it came about, verse 17, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him out on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and he said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? He's even asking himself some questions. Why? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you're a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now there had been a few years of drought, And famine in Israel, that's the setting, chapter 17, verse 1, because the Lord was disciplining Israel. The Lord's allowed to discipline sin, right? Right? We need to accept that truth, because a lot of people don't. Israel had been in rebellion. Israel had been worshiping false gods. Israel had been allowing every king to be evil and wicked. And Elijah is one of the only people nationwide who's still standing for the Lord. We see in verses 4 to 6 that he had been living completely by faith. He had no shelter. He's living by a little stream. There are no resources other than this stream for water. And the fact that every day food's brought to him by the ravens. He's taking a very unpopular stand. He's challenging Ahab. He's in a dangerous position at this point. And and now one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had is is uh, being called out for his sin by this one prophet, Elijah. And in the middle of this, we have this widow, Zarephath, whose life has been uh, adversely affected by the drought to the extent that when he comes into town and sees her, she's gathering sticks 
because she's going to go make a fire and use whatever flour and she's been scrounging and, and kind of, uh, you know, making sure that she uses just a little bit every day, just enough to get by. Now she's at the end. There's just a little bit of flour left. She can't go to the store. There's nothing there. So she gets the flour. She gets a little bit of oil. She's gathering sticks. She's going to make one more loaf of bread and that's going to be it. The pantry's empty. So she's been affected by this. So he comes into town. And of course, the first thing he says is, I need some water. Well, there is no water. It's a drought. And then he says, by the way, while you're getting me what little water is left, I, I need something to eat. I, I need you to make me uh, some bread. Now, she goes, you know, you can kind of read between the lines. What are you, crazy? What are you, crazy? There's no supplies left. What are you talking about, make you a loaf of bread? By the way, I'm making my final loaf for me and my son, and then we're going to starve to death. So, so I, I think in her humanity, she's going, how dare you? How dare you ask me for a loaf of bread or a piece of bread even because I don't have any? And he says, listen, I know you're in a desperate situation, but hear the word of the Lord. If you do this, you'll have more flour than you can use. That oil is not going to run dry. It's going to be inexhaustible if you will follow the Lord's direction. And what does she do? She shows faith and she does it. And the Lord, as he always does, keeps his word. But then a second problem hits in verse 17. And her son dies. Now, what would you do in that situation? Of course, she blames Elijah and she blames God, even though God had been continually gracious, even though every day God had given her tangible reminders of his blessing. So Elijah, shorten the story here, Elijah calls on the Lord and he asks for the restoration of the boy's life. And he prays. And, and as God restores the boy's life, he leads, it leads the woman to become convinced in that last verse we read, verse 24, that, that God is God, that he keeps his word, and that she should trust him. Now, this is vitally important because for the woman, she was in major crisis. She didn't really know what to do. And if we're really going to be kind of cynical, and we're going to kind of look at it with, with maybe a little bit worldly eyes this morning, the whole account, the whole situation seems like an unnecessary trial to put on this woman's life. Why did God allow this? Why did he allow her to go through this, this difficulty? If, if you really want to be harsh, it almost seems like he's toying her by allowing, toying with her by allowing her supplies to get down to the last cake and then actually letting her son die only to be raised up again. And to me, that brings about the question, why? Why did the Lord do it this way? Why not just have Elijah come into her house and preach a strong, spirit-filled message to convince her? Or have some people come around her and say, Lord, uh, you know, we know you're hurting and we know you're struggling, so let us pray and let us sing some songs to you and, and hopefully encourage you and, and maybe bring you and your son another loaf of bread so he's not going to pass away. Why, why doesn't that happen? All those things are wonderful. A, a spirit-filled message, praise, prayer, all those things are great. And they minister to people. But sometimes the Lord needs to use a different method to fulfill his purpose. And that's what we're going to see this morning. I want to encourage you, take some notes. I'll try to be brief. Because we're going to identify reasons why. 
reasons why the Lord disciplines, reasons why the Lord allows difficulty sometimes, and what he's teaching us because of it. And I want to very briefly give you five this morning, five reasons why. Number one, he does it to remind us of his power and his authority. God constantly is going to remind us of his power and his authority. The reason we sing wonderful songs like we just sang is to remind us of his power and authority. He assures us that he is in total control, and we definitely aren't. If something's been proven this week, it's been that. And see, here's the problem. Our culture has become so brazen and so bold in its defiance of him, and its rebellion against him. I've lived 53 and a half years. I've never seen anything like it. Things have shifted so rapidly. There is resistance against anything biblical, and now there's even resistance against anything constitutional. There's a push against churches. There's strong opposition to Israel. There's the hostility of these uh, rebellious groups that are marching through streets and saying whatever. There's the agenda of the abortion industry and the gay marriage industry and the transgender industry that, that are all pushing legislation against the word. And, and all of these things signal a relentless attempt to eliminate God and eliminate Christianity. And that assault, not to be negative, is only going to increase. But God is still in control. And he has a way of humbling people who openly reject him and openly reject his word and oppress his people. Think about all through biblical history. The people at Babel who were so proud and thought they could reach heaven, they were scattered and confused the Egyptians who oppressed the Israelites for years and years and years, they drowned in the Red Sea. The Philistines who were always coming to bug the Jews, they were killed by the tens of thousands. The nations that oppressed Israel in the Old Testament have all disappeared. Nebuchadnezzar who built a statue to himself and said, worship me, he was humbled. The, the Pharisees who put Jesus to death, they were rendered powerless. The devil was defeated at the grave and, and defeated at the cross and the empty tomb. And God even disciplined Israel when she rebelled and, and, and he made them wander through the wilderness and then be scattered and taken captive. He will humble those who defy him. And how many know America needs a fresh humbling this morning? This country needs a fresh humbling. But listen, God is not calloused. He still offers salvation to anybody. He offers salvation to anyone who surrenders their life and trusts in Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look, it struck me, I've studied this passage, I don't know how many times, but I looked at verses 14 and 15 this week, and I saw that the bread really was living, right? And I thought, what a picture of Jesus. The living bread of heaven. That bread Every day, there was more, there was more, there was more, there was more. This is what God does. He restores life. And that's such a powerful truth that we need to be confident in sharing that the Lord will still save even the most defiant, evil person from sin. And he is willing to pour out his grace 
on the person that stands and swears in his name this morning and wants nothing to do with him, if they would turn their heart to God, he would save them right now. What an amazing, loving, gracious God. Aren't you grateful that he's willing to save us? Aren't you grateful that, that he's slow to anger and rich in love? Because I know I need that every day. And we need to be reminded of his past and present mercy. We need to be reminded of his future promises. Because that helps us to guard against questioning his perfect will. See, the enemy's deception, and we've talked about it many times, is to say to us that we have a right to challenge God for what he does. David even wrestled with this numerous Psalms, Psalm 4, Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 22. That's just in the first 25. You see David going, why? Why, Lord? Where are you? Why aren't you helping me? What's the deal? Why, why, why aren't you ministering to me? Why are you allowing my enemies to prosper? Over and over and over again. But in every one of those Psalms, he comes to an understanding at the end that God's ways are perfect and that his will is inscrutable and that when we trust in him, he will provide in his time. And we have to be confident in that. So why does God allow stuff? Because he wants to remind us of his power and authority. Second, quickly, he reminds us that our sin, our sin is why there is tragedy and death. Now this sounds harsh, but, but go with it. Tragedy and death would not exist if it wasn't for our sin. Now that is a truth that, that people rarely want to own up to people are very quick to blame it all on God without taking any personal responsibility. And it's been really ironic as I've watched news of this hurricane that God's getting criticized, God's getting impugned for allowing this to happen, usually by the same person that openly denies him and praises Mother Nature. And then churches are being criticized and blamed for being calloused and not opening their doors by the same people that avoid them and mock them and want to take away their tax-exempt status. I don't hear the media calling for mosques to be open. I don't hear the media calling for Catholic cathedrals to be open. I don't hear the media calling for the, for the, for the uh, Mormons to open their buildings. I, I don't hear the media saying, you know what? These government buildings that are huge and massive and have all this space and nice bathrooms, we need to open up all the government buildings so people can come camp out. Do you hear anybody saying that? It's just the evangelical church. Whenever someone asks... Why didn't God create a world without suffering? Tell them that he did. He did create a world without suffering. In Genesis 1.31, it says that he created everything and he looked around and it was good. See, when he created Adam and Eve, there was no sin and no shame. They didn't have a song like Grace to Grace because there was no sin and shame. There were no chains of bondage. They lived in his presence with his blessing and they were completely content. They had dominion over the animals and dominion over the plants and there was no division between them and there was no work and there was no pain and there was no cause for any amount of unhappiness. But as soon as they listened to the enemy's lies and as soon as they rebelled against the word of the Lord, it was all destroyed. They were punished, banished, in conflict with each other, and they experience pain and sadness 
and death. Now listen, that wasn't because God was petty. And it wasn't because God was looking to punish them. It was because he's perfectly holy and he cannot allow sin in his presence. He is the sovereign Lord over all and he cannot allow rebellion or insubordination. Then people will ask, well, why didn't God foresee this and stop this? I read a really good response from a pastor this week. He said, listen, when you became parents, you knew there would be days of rebellion and heartache and mistakes, but that didn't stop you from having kids, did it? See, God loves us, but God also allowed us the free will to make those decisions. And he says, I don't want anybody. Listen now. You've heard this verse a hundred times. Hear it again. I don't want anybody to perish or go to hell. I want every single person to come to repentance. Remember that in the times like these when people are blaming God. So because of these truths, because he loves us, he is not happy about our sin, and he doesn't like the consequences of it. He's righteously angry about it, and that should make us angry about it too. It should make us defiant towards sin, not toward God. We, we, we blame him for what we ourselves have caused. I was reading articles about flooding this week in some of the cities that have been so massively flooded. It says that, that New Orleans flooded because they built levees that were not able to withstand floodwaters. It's built below sea level, and then you put up walls that are only so many feet. So if a real hurricane like Katrina comes through, the walls aren't going to work. It says that there are people in Houston that have rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt in flood zones, some as many as 23 times in 25 years, using tax dollars because politicians got greedy and allowed them to build in a flood zone, and they did it. And then there's Israel, which continued to build idols and continued to worship uh, them while, while ignoring God. So God sends a drought, look back at verse 1, he sends a drought to draw them back to himself. Now, despite what God's opponents say, this is not being harsh. We need to recognize that sometimes our actions aren't wise and there are logical consequences to that. But go back to the fact that God is gracious and wants to save us out of our sin. So he wants to remind us of his power. He wants to remind us that our sin is why there's tragedy. Third, would you see that he does it to test if people will cry out to him. God allows certain things to test to see if people will cry out to him. Now, we tend in life to look for a quick solution ourselves. Instead, we need to pray and wait for his provision. Now, that doesn't mean we're not active. It doesn't mean we keep moving forward. We don't keep moving forward until God stops us. That as he opens doors, we continue to walk through them. They may not make sense. We have to seek and wait and trust, but we also have to be active. When David was at Balperazim in, in 2 Samuel 5, he said to the Lord on two separate occasions, should I go forward? And as soon as God said, yes, go forward and put the wind in the balsam trees, David acted. So faith is not just, well, I'll sit back and wait for God to work. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, 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 just, I'll just rest in him and wait. Yeah, that's true. But there's an active component to it. 
And then there's another principle at play. And, and this one, I believe the Lord really put on my heart this week. And this one can be a real challenge to our understanding. Sometimes when we cry out to the Lord, He doesn't immediately come to our rescue. Now we always say, well, call on the Lord and He'll answer. And, 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 and when you're in trouble, I'll come to you. And that is true. But it may not be in the way we think. And the Lord put on my heart this week the analogy of a baby crying in the night. On almost any occasion, what do you do as a parent? You rush in there. What do you need? Your diaper's full. You need food. You need to be held. You need to be rocked. You need a little song. I'll read you Goodnight Moon for the 14,000th time. I just, I just want to just hold you and take care of you. But what happens is the baby gets older and more mature. There are times when you let them cry it out. Boy, I struggled with that the first time we did it with Jacob. Julie's like, no, listen, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. I'm like, no, he needs me. He needs me. My little boy needs me. Who's now in college with a beard. <laughs> she said, no. And this is one of the hardest things you have to do as a parent. You want to rush in there every time and minister to them. But it's necessary sometimes not to rush right in so they don't get spoiled. And those little buggers will manipulate you, right? I'll just keep crying till dad comes in because he's a soft touch. So if I stand and really scream, he's coming. They have to be learn they have to learn to be confident in you. Listen now very carefully. They have to learn to be confident in you without always getting your immediate help, because that's part of the maturation process. Now, that seems contrary to what we know about the Lord, but it is a very important spiritual principle. Let me illustrate it. If you knew that every time you prayed, God would immediately give you what you wanted, how would you view prayer? How would you view him? Hey, I need something. God, need it. Now, boom, done. Okay. Oh, I like that. Hey, I need this too. God, need it. Boom, done. Faster than Amazon. How would we view prayer? How would we learn to labor in prayer and persevere in prayer? And how in the world would our faith develop? How would we mature if that was the case? See, part of faith is waiting. Part of faith is seeking. Part of faith is learning to understand the ways of God. And as we call on Him, and as we advance in our faith and yield to His plan, that's how we mature. So God is not always going to be at your beck and call. Listen carefully now. Hear what I'm saying. That when we pray, it's not just, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? I'm ready to serve. My plan, my purpose, my time, and I may say no because it's for your good. So I will work according to my plan, but never doubt that when you call, I hear. But sometimes I'm standing at the door like a parent, oh, I did this so many times. I want to go in. I want to go in. But he needs to work through this. God tests that people will cry out to him. I haven't seen it in America in the last week of you. Number four, he does it to test if people will trust him and obey him like they should. He does it to test if people will trust him and obey him like they should. For those who don't trust God at all, this is a test of their heart. 
It's to see if their heightened awareness of his power and his aware, their awareness of their helplessness will finally convince them to trust in him. See, Elijah, look back at the text, verse 11. He tests the woman in this. He says, feed me first. And the first couple of times I read that, I'm like, man, Elijah has got an attitude. This dude is selfish. Walk into town. Feed me, feed me, feed me. I don't care about your son. Give me some bread. That, that's first take on it, but that's not what he's doing. He's testing this woman to see if she will trust God. And then he says in verse 13, look at it. He says, you don't have to fear if you trust the Lord. What a great spiritual principle. Put that on your wall today. I don't have to fear if I trust the Lord. And it may seem a little punitive that, that, that the Lord allows tragedy, but if everybody just trusted him in the first place and didn't live for themselves, there wouldn't be any tragedies. Now, for those who do know him, and those who do trust him, that test of our faith may seem unnecessary, especially if we think to ourselves, well, I, Paul, I can't trust him more than I already do. You know, I've uttered that sentence a number of times over the 42 years that I've been saved. And the response I hear over and over from the Lord when I say, I don't think I can trust you any more than I can do, he always says, are you sure of that? Let's test it. I bet you can trust me more than you do. See, the fact of our faith is that it's still too shallow. He always wants to take us to deeper levels of dependence. We are never done learning stronger faith. He wants to teach us maturity. He wants to take us to a different level of dependence. I don't care how long you've known him. I don't care how long you've served him. I don't care if you've been a missionary or a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a teacher or a nursery worker. It does not matter. He will always take you to a deeper level of faith so that in his presence, we are confident. We're not panicking. We're not fearful. We're just abiding in him. And he wants us to have fresh experiences of his grace and his provision. Listen, God loves, this is such an amazing truth. God loves to lavish his grace on us. He loves to pour out his provision on us. He even says, test me in this. When you give, test me, because if you give, I will give abundantly. That's not prosperity gospel. Don't confuse that. That's you don't understand the type of blessing I want to pour it on your life. I'm not talking a new boat and a new car and a new house. That's material stuff that fades away. I want to help you. I want to be present. I want to give you confidence. I want to give you peace that passes all understanding, that fills your hearts and minds through Christ. I want you to know my sufficiency. I want you to know that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I just want to show you every day how much I love you. So we need to go to a deeper level of faith. We need to have a greater understanding so that the endorphins of his blessing are released into our heart, so that we just experience his fresh mercy and his fresh blessing. And listen, this applies to every day, not just the major events that are crises and tragedies. Faith is daily. Last thought. Why does God allow things? 
that are difficult. He does it to give his people an opportunity to show his love and mercy to others. He does it to allow his people an opportunity to show his love and mercy to others many times in ways that we wouldn't have been able to. Even though tragedy is so sad and so overwhelming, it also provides an opening for us to care about people that we might not ever come in contact with. This is why we're giving to Samaritan's Purse this morning with our second offering, because their rapid response ministry does so much. They are the first ones on the ground, even before the Red Cross can mobilize. Why? Because they have local people in every area who can immediately respond and minister to people and pray for people and come alongside them and fill sandbags and just be present without any agenda, without, well, we're a government organization, so we have to do a certain way. They just come in and are the hands and feet of Christ. They're local, they know the culture, they know what's going on, but more importantly, they share the gospel verbally and practically. In every area, there are chaplains that are trained and ready, so when a tornado comes through, or a hurricane floods a city, or whatever happens that's a crisis, they come in, and they hand them a bottle of water, and they put their arm around them, and they say, can I pray for you, and can I tell you that God loves you so much, and he will provide for you if you trust in him. Opportunities that would not have been there without the crisis. Look back at verse 23 for a minute. God knew the widow at Zarephath. He already saw the crisis that was coming, and he knew that child would die. But he also knew that Elijah was the person for that. See, in whatever situation we're in, whether it's wading through floodwaters or praying for a friend who's hurting or introducing to ourselves to the neighbors around this church and inviting them, we're given opportunities every single day to powerfully demonstrate the grace of God to others. And I am convinced, as we prayed at the start, that God wants to stoke the fire under us in this area. Because, listen, the body of Christ can get a little sleepy and apathetic, right? We can get sleepy and apathetic in underestimating the power of telling people about God's love and about demonstrating his mercy and we can get a little sleepy and apathetic when we don't always see the the door of up and opportunity and we always don't walk through it and minister to people just out of care for them let alone to show them the love of Christ and this even applies to difficulties we experience ourselves when we heard about Leah last night it really hit my daughter because Annie and Lelia were very good friends, and Lelia really ministered to my daughter this summer. So she's heartbroken, and she's crying, and, and, and she knows Lelia's heart, that she loves to minister and, and serve people, and that she has just a humble heart. And, and I thought in that moment, I said to Annie, look, is eventually going to use this for ministry. Because if her heart is for ministry, not being able to walk is not going to stop her. 
See, even in those times of trial, even in those times of difficulty, God is preparing us for future ministry. If you've gone through a divorce, he's going to put other people in your path that are experiencing that so you can tell them about the victory and sufficiency of the Father. If, if you've gone through difficult health problems and you've gotten through them and God's been faithful, he's going to put other people with the exact same health problem that I can't minister to because I don't know what it's like. And you're going to be able to speak truth to them and say, God loves you and he will provide for you and you need to trust in him over and over and over again. When we look for ways based on our own experience and our own knowledge to minister to people, God will provide them. And it's vital, I'm done, it is vital that we do not squander those lessons. Because if we do, the Lord will take us through them again. The verse says, in everything, give thanks. And I'm telling you, there are many times in my life where that's been very difficult to do. But when I remember the grace of God and when I trusted him and when I used that open door to minister and and share the gospel with others, God has blessed it. Let's ask him to help us.